All right, sorry about that. Um, so as we saw last week, the church is not a social club. It's not merely an affiliation of like-minded people pursuing a particular cause, but it is the household of God whose central charge and foundation is the truth. And Paul ended chapter 3 with this um, lyrical either song or confession that expresses the mystery of godliness that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. Our mission, our identity, our purpose is holding fast to this confession of Jesus who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So after being given in chapter 3 this portrait of what right behavior in the church looks like, built on and supported by the person and work of Jesus Christ, Paul in chapter 4 turns to warning Timothy about the dangers of irreverent, silly myths taught by hypocritical liars who pass themselves as being led by the Spirit, but instead are diabolically inspired. In contrast, Paul enjoins Timothy, who though young in years, should set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, by remaining steadfast to the words that the Holy Spirit has written. So now let me read for us uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and then um, we'll work our way through this um, short chapter. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you follow. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil, toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thus far, the word of our God. Uh, may he guide us as we explore its truth this morning. So the chapter starts with this spirit-revealed warning 
against those who, quote, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And I think when I first uh, was reading this, um, I, I was kind of expecting, after he gave us that beautiful picture at the end of chapter 3 of who Christ is, that, you know, the deviation, um, uh, you know, this departing from the faith would have something to do with, you know, rejection of that creed. Um, but instead, um, the major deviation uh, are these prohibitions against marriage and the eating of certain foods. So what makes these prohibitions against marriage and the eating of certain foods so dangerous? I mean, look at the language he uses. They depart from the faith. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So pretty um, striking language about the severity of what these false teachers are teaching. So what makes prohibitions of marriage forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received from Thanksgiving so dangerous for the church of Christ. Yeah, Ronnie. Okay, so taking what God has intended and twisting it. And um, I like the idea of um, turning the mind or like taking the mind from what the things that the way God has described them and turning them to something else. So as you think about it, on the face it might seem, well, aren't there some bigger issues in the church than, you know, just for forbidding marriage or certain dietary practices? Well, it seems that the way they're positioning it um, and teaching these things represent a severe twisting and departure from the faith. Yeah, and it's this additional requirement, sort of adding, adding to what the scripture says or going beyond what the scripture says and, and creating, I like the way he says, this kind of, you know, these mechanisms to feed our ego, you know, to feed our sense of spiritual superiority or to feed our sense that we're really holy because, you know, um, we avoid these things altogether. So not only am I, uh, you know, uh, continent in my sexuality, I won't even get married. It's that kind of idea that I won't even come close to, to sexual expression because um, you see all those laws about, you know, how all the laws that make sexual expression, that prescribe the sinfulness of certain forms of sexual expression. So I'm, you know, putting it myself even farther from it. 
or you know, I'm going to not taint myself with these material corruptions of certain foods. Um, and it's adding these prohibitions. Um, and it's, you know, again, it might seem like, you know, it's just the, the camel's nose sticking under the tent there. But at the heart of it, it's saying things that God created and called good are bad. And we should avoid them. God said marriage is good. Um, it's not that uh, sexuality is sinful. No, God created it. He, but he desired it to be expressed in this particular relationship. And it's good for a man to leave his father and mother and become one flesh with his wife. That is the way God made it. That's the way God intended it. And to say what God called good, bad, is a perversion of the truth. Yeah, I mean, and and the the second one too, you know, forbidding of, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of Lent, you know, and, you know, Catholics on Fridays don't eat, uh, you know, abstain from from meat um, on Fridays, and you know, this you know, forbidding things, um, uh, and and often as you look at um, the history, and, and there's this kind of it's not explicitly state, stated here, but there's this kind of suggestion that they're forbidding other people from doing it while they themselves are doing it. So, you know, that whole conscious, their consciences are seared. Um, it's the idea there is their consciences are kind of cauterized. <laughs> you know, um, some of your translations might have seared with an iron. It's the idea that, you know, rather than having a functioning conscience, their conscience has been, um, yeah, cut off <laughs> and, and seared. You know, so it's not, it's like what you do when you amputate a limb, you know, you cut it off, but you sear it with an iron to prevent its, you know, bleeding, and it's that, they've had a limb of their person, in this case, their conscience has been cauterized. So they're, you know, uh, they're not pricked by the things they're doing, but they're enjoining these prohibitions on other people. Yeah, so it's, yeah, and again, we can think of all the kinds of, uh, you know, go through a catalog of examples of, of ministers, um, you know, you see it all the time with kind of prosperity gospel, you know, enjoining certain kinds of behaviors on their followers while they themselves are, you know, spending lavishly on themselves. And as we've seen in, in Paul's instructions to Timothy, that's a complete inversion of the leadership model that he's putting before him. And, you know, in this case, he's focusing not on why it's bad leadership, it's bad theology. Um, to, to call something that God called good bad is, is, is not just sort of adding to the scripture, it's, it's adding something that goes against scripture. Yeah, sure.
yeah, and again, he's not, um, and one of the things to remember is, like, he's not saying everybody has to be married or everybody has to eat every kind of food, but we can't, as a church or as teachers, prohibit things that God, and as you said, Bill, call things that God calls good, bad. Um, And if we have that attitude, you know, we've got to devote ourselves to, you know, kind of prayer. Uh, You know, this is one of the things I often say, um, and it's something I learned from um, a ruling elder who um, I respect a lot. You know, as an elder, you know, we, as, as leaders of people, we always have to be careful not to put injunctions on people or commands upon people beyond things that are in Scripture. Like, you know, that, you know, like, you have to do this um, because I, you know, I say so. <laughs> well, Scripture doesn't say so, so what's my authority for saying so? It's, we have this ability as, and, and you know, one of the things um, we'll see in this um, chapter is the, the responsibility of an overseer of the church, which Timothy is, has, has weight to it. Again, like there's severe consequences. You know, the chapter ends with this note that his salvation and the salvation of, of others is, is wrapped up into his office the things he does. So it's not something to be taken lightly. So we can't, um, you know, when we think about, you know, these kinds of prohibitions, to, to go, we can't go beyond um, what Scripture says. And especially in this case, calling things that God says are good to say that they're sinful and must be uprooted. Um, and while we think here probably a lot of, kind of later Catholic teaching in this is probably Paul's primary concern is probably with an early form of Gnosticism which which said that material things themselves are evil so if you're a really spiritual person then you'll you know you seek to transcend these material things they even postulated that that God who created the world they called the demiurge you know was this kind of subordinate God. The true God is the God of the New Testament. They're sort of splitting the Testaments apart, which Timothy, or Paul's letter to Timothy, is bringing those Testaments together. And here, emphasizing, no, the God who saves us is the God who created the world. The God who we worship is the creator of material things, and the material things he made are good. We can use them in sinful ways, but the problem itself isn't matter. <laughs> the problem itself is with our sinful corruption of matter. But matter itself is good because it's, it's created by God. So he's, um, he's trying to do away with this kind of, you know, again, this hierarchy of people saying, I'm truly spiritual because I shun all these material things. Um, you know, I shun sex. I shun eating foods. I you know, discipline my body in certain ways. And he's like, no. <laughs> that's, that's a perversion of God's creation that we worship. Um, in this first verse, I, I like the, there's this kind of little um, contrast between he has, uh, he says, now the spirit expressly says, um, so he, he has the spirit, and your version probably hasn't capitalized, so you know, the implication being Holy Spirit says. Um, and then you have these other people that are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits.
So how do we discern what is from the spirit of truth and how do we know what's from deceitful spirits? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. As we see, and as we see the, it, the importance this chapter puts on instruction, um, you know, the emphasis on right teaching. You know, Timothy's put these things before the brothers. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you followed. And then later on, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So as we think about you know, the antidote to the spirit of error or the deceitful spirits, the antidote that Paul is presenting Timothy is devotion to the word of God. Um, and if you think back to um, our study of the Holy Spirit, last year, this is totally consistent with what we talked about, the Spirit's uh, role, the Spirit's job is to shine that spotlight on Jesus Christ. You know, that is what the Spirit is doing. You know, as, as Jesus says, the Spirit will guide you in, in all truth. Um, and will bring to mind these things I say to you. The Spirit takes us to Christ. And if, the, if something, you know, you're being led by some kind of inclination towards something else that is other than Christ, then that is a chief sign that it's a spirit of, you know, a deceitful spirit. There's that idea. Other things? How do we discern the spirit of truth from the spirit Yeah, so prayer. Um, notice how the reading of scripture, um, and I think this is sometimes just in our um, American culture, we emphasize individual devotions, but, you know, sometimes with my individual devotions, I, I kind of feel like that I'm the blind person <laughs> and I'm leading myself into further blindness. You know, that, and that's one of the reasons I run the Sunday school this way is that, you know, Scripture is, is the, the property of the church. Um, you know, it is for individual instruction, but, you know, we, we should study it in community with one another uh, through prayer. You know, so prayer is one way. Community is another. Uh, that, you know, that these aren't things, well, you know, the Spirit told me this, and someone else said, <laughs> no, the Spirit told me this. You know, we do away with those kind of conflicts when we study the word together and the spirit is leading us in truth together. So, so yeah, so prayer, you know, um, not just reading the scripture, but reading the scripture collectively. Notice even here, um, you know, uh, Paul uh, emphasizes, do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on them or the presbyteries. So, you know, even... Timothy's um, gifts have been
been recognized by a community. You know, we're meant to be a church, not a church of, of lone rangers, but a people who are collectively um, brought together to, to help guide one another in truth. That you're not, you know, as we sort of think about, you know, how do I discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error? Well, you don't have to do it on your own. <laughs> you know, that we have one another to to help, um, to sort of say, ah, I don't know that, that that's what that passage is saying. Maybe it, you know, we should think about it this way. You know, that is the, the value of studying the scriptures communally and not just individually. Other things we want to say on the spirit of error, the spirit of truth there? Yeah, Jake. And um, as we think about um, this, the spirit has said in the latter days and later days, later times, um, this is something Paul said to the elders at the church of Ephesus. And remember, that's where Timothy is at this moment. Um, So in Acts 20, Paul warns, had gathered the Ephesians elders together before he leaves, and he warns them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, you know, as we think about that, that it is this, striking, severe warning, um, and it's, it is these wolves in sheep's clothing, and he's warning that these elders, before he departs Ephesus, some of these might be you. (laughs) You know, you could be that deceitful teacher, Um, and often, um, again, when we hear warnings like that, our our first um, little warnings like we get in 1 Timothy, our first thought is always to think of, oh, that's them, them, you know, to think of someone else. <laughs> but he, you know, the warning is, this could be you. <laughs> you could have good intentions um, and and be dead wrong. Um, uh, I have, um, uh, I think one of the, lots of things I learned from, from Grant Wacker, but I think one of the, the greatest things, aha moments I had from studying under, under him is this idea that liberal theologians um, can be um, so well-intentioned and such outwardly pious on the outside Christian and yet dead wrong. <laughs> and it's that idea that, because usually bad teaching, you know, that, they're, that they must have some bad intention or something. That's the 
idea that they can be deceived um, into thinking they're right and so committed to, to, to their sense of the truth that they shut out all kind of other corrective instructions. They're blind to how what they're saying contradicts the word of God and yet still present themselves as devoted uh, Christians. Um, and it's, I think it's that idea that you're bringing out here. All right, well, let's um, move on to, uh, we get our third trustworthy saying. So, again, they're uh, throughout the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and then Titus, Paul keeps using this um, um, repeated phrase, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So this is the third time that it comes up in verse 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. But what is the saying? Um, is it verse 8? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and full acceptance. Or is it verse 10? For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. <laughs> yeah, so, and as we think about that first part, you know, it's the way the second statement kind of encapsulates the first part. The first part is on the value of, of training yourself spiritually, um, but, you know, you do that um, because, you know, for to this end we toil and strive. So that's part of the, you know, the toil and striving because we have our hope set on the living God. So, you know, why do we do that? We don't do it for its own sake. Um, you know, unlike, you know, um, working out in a gym, you know, where it has its own benefits of health and vigor and, you know, human standards of beauty or whatever reason brings you to the gym, you know, that this has, you know, it's, it's because of this hope we have in the living God is why we discipline and train ourselves spiritually in these ways. Others, what do you think? Um, okay, so you're voting for the first, the trustworthy third and first one, and then we're getting the fuller explanation. And again, people I like. <laughs> commentators went both ways on this, so I'm not sure I, I have <laughs> an answer. I, I don't have an answer. Um, because, yeah, some people take it, you know, the first statement, and then he gives the, so this is a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. Um, and then other people um, say, well, yeah, it's actually So this one, yeah, this one's a little more interesting. <laughs> no, go ahead.
<laughs> so so the, what pattern has been thus far, he gives the statement, the same is full, is trustworthy and, and worthy of full acceptance, and then gives you, so to give you the intro and then the show. Mike, do you? I don't know that it does. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of those, um, it's a matter of, of emphasis. Um, and as we think of this trustworthy sayings, again, these are things that, you know, they're, they're supposed to be, um, you know, things you're supposed to, to kind of memorize, latch on to, you know, that this is, again, a core tenet that we should make sure that we're pointing to. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, so in that sense, well, which exactly is the core tenet? I mean, um, from our approach to scripture, you know, our particular um, approach to scripture, well, it's all God-breathed, as we'll see in 2 Timothy, um, <laughs> and useful. So, yeah, it's not like we can go wrong. <laughs> Because, <laughs> yeah, in the Greek, it's all, yeah, no punctuation. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Yeah, and I've said this before, translation is interpretation, you know, um, and, and that's why um, I encourage people to use more than one translation because it, it, it's a helpful way. You know, I, like when I was looking at this, you know, I looked at the ESV, King James, you know, like I looked at multiple versions. Um, I tried to look at the Greek. <laughs> My Greek's a little rusty, but, you know. Um, but, you know, you don't have to, to know Greek to sort of see where these kinds of, um, the difference of that translation make comes up. You can just look and sort of say, huh, that's a different way of, of rendering that. That kind of changes the meaning a little bit. Um, and in this case, you know, the translator has to make an interpretation because it's not evident in the original language, you know, which, which does it, this, the same clause belong with what comes before, what comes after. There's no you know, punctuation signifier that the, the translator can follow. So the translator has to decide. Um, and this is, again, why we study these things in community, because we can sort of, you know, say what's the, um, you know, which one is more consistent with the teachings of the scripture. Yeah. Because it's the old, you know, why learn, why learn to fish? <laughs> is it better to give someone a fish or teach them to fish? You're like, you know, is it better for me to just dispense information to you or to help you learn to read the scriptures for yourself? Because again, I'm up here 
Uh, I'm trying to model for you, <laughs> you know, how we go about this. Because when we're not in community, you should still be pursuing the scriptures, reading them on your own. You know, it's the way that, you know, the two things go together. Uh, and that we have this authoritative figure on us. You know, we, we have the pulpit to sit for. So we kind of have levels of ways we study scripture. But even that has a check on us. So, you know, in our, that's why there's a presbytery. So we have a body of men that holds the person over us accountable, that examines the man. If the man says something um, contrary to scripture, we can go to the presbytery and say that, and they'll investigate it, you know, and make sure they hold them accountable. It's, it's the idea that we're, we're all sinful and can go into error. Um, we all have to, you know, we all, you know, nobody, even somebody who's studied it 20 years um, and somebody's only studied it two, they can both go into error. You know. <laughs> the amount you know doesn't, uh, or the amount you don't know, makes you either more prone or less prone to, to, to error, <laughs> I guess is what I, you know. And, and be led by the, the Spirit. Um, and, you know, the way in our confessional tr tradition, Scripture interprets Scripture. You know, so when we have matters where we have, you know, disagreement, so in this case, like Jay, you know, how do we decide? Well, let's look at the other trustworthy things. Those, and, you know, that's a good principle, using other Scripture, how it's phrased elsewhere to help us figure out what it, which one is it here. You know, again, it's these kind of principles that will guide us. So it's not just, um, well, I think this and you think that, and we go our separate ways. No, it, it always has to be based on, you know, evidence from the Word of God. Yeah, and the way I've often thought of this, um, it makes me slow down, you know, because, you know, our, and this is our tendency. I mean, I have to, I mean, in many ways, my job is weekly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I, I get paid to read, you know. I get paid to do other things, too, but I can't do the other things unless I've done my reading. <laughs> um, and so I have to learn to read things fast and, you know, be economical and efficient in my way reading. And, you know, because I'm trying to get ready for tomorrow's class or I'm having to go give a lecture next week somewhere or I have to write, you know, I've got a deadline, which is way overdue, <laughs> of something they're waiting for me to write. And I can't write it yet because I haven't finished reading what I'm supposed to write about. Um, so, you know, I'm always trying to read fast. And this is a way that makes me slow down. And it makes me think. So I'm not just assuming I know what it means. I have to wrestle with it. Um, and uh, I like that idea that, you know, it's actually, rather than being a difficulty, um, thinking of it as a help, you know, that the process is as, as important as the product. Yeah, this is.
Um, now some translations. and um, I, Well, I didn't notice it as much from translations, and I didn't notice, notice it from commentators either. Like Calvin takes it as the second clause, <laughs> but other Reformed people at the time take it as the prior clause. Um, so, um, no. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that I could discern. Um, yeah. Like, you know, um, again, I look at quite a few commentators, and um, one of them I'm using for this, this semester is uh, William Hendrickson, um, who was, was um, deceased now, but Reformed, taught at um, several different Reformed seminaries, and he takes it as the prior one. But Calvin takes it as the latter. You know, so even with our own tradition. Um, but I want us to, uh, yeah. asking that, because that was actually my very next question, so <laughs> I don't have to ask it. Um, you know, we, you know, I wanted us, that was the very next thing I wanted us to think about. You know, both that phrase, um, and we could, we could maybe do them together. So, um, you know, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So, you know, is this some kind of universal salvation, what does it mean that all people are saved, especially believers, and then at, in verse 16, um, persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So, you know, you've got two um, kind of, uh, you know, passages that people have used to um, either promote universal salvation or to promote a salvation by work. So what do we do with these passages? Yes, sir. So it so those who are saved are from God. So, yeah, so as, as we wrestle with it, um, one option is to, to sort of to think about the idea of um, that the offer is to all, the, the offer of salvation is universal. Right, so, but the actual election, um, so, so that's one way people have, have you know, worked through this, this difficulty. Um, yes, sir. So that's another option that people have taken. Of, and, and we saw that use in chapter one. You know, he used salvation in 
of all uh, people. We use the same phrase from chapter one to sort of emphasize So we've already seen Paul in this letter um, use that that phrase. Yeah, and as we see it, even the way he's phrasing it here, he's making a distinction, you know, He's the savior of all people, especially for those who believe. So he's already kind of establishing two kind of categories here. That they're, um, so we have to sort of think about, you know, what's being distinguished by the two different categories. Yeah, and, and, you know, as we think about um, the word save uh, here, or savior, that it has different uses. Um, and so we have to think about, you know, what is the particular um, usage that he's referring to? Is he referring to eternal salvation, or is he referring to some other kind of deliverance um, in another form? If we were to look at the Old Testament, you know, we see lots of, you know, God saves the Jews, you know, that you know, brings them out of captivity to Egypt. But we know not everybody who brought out of captivity from Egypt was saved. But, you know, it, Scripture uses both the, the, the language, the same word, to describe two different activities on the plane of God. Um, so, that's, um, so that's another way of sort of thinking about it, is that, you know, it's the way that I mean, one way to think about it um, is this. We, we, we don't deserve this moment. We don't deserve this day. You know, there's this way that each and every day, God saves us from the destruction that we deserve. Not just the people who believe in him, but lots of people who don't. don't lots of people he delivers day to day from their calamities and afflictions. What the psalmist struggles with in Psalm 73, you know, why do the wicked seem to prosper so much? You know, why do you give all these good things to them? Um, and then he has this kind of reorientation. He sees his end, and he sees the benefit to belief and trust in God. Um, and I think it's that kind of distinction that's being made here. Um, and this is actually, uh, let me just read. Um, I like how Calvin um, talked about this. I can find my right page. Um, so Calvin said this, the word savior is not here taken in what we call its proper and strict meaning in regard to eternal salvation, which God promises to his elect, but it's taken for one who delivers and protects. Thus we see that even unbelievers are protected by God, as it is said in Matthew 5.46, that he maketh his son to shine on the good and the bad. And we see that all are fed by his goodness that all are delivered from many dangers. In this sense, he's called the savior of all men, not in regard to the spiritual salvation of their souls, but because he supports all his creatures. 
In this way, therefore, our Lord is the Savior of all men. That is, his goodness extends to the most wicked, who are estranged from him, and who do not deserve to have any intercourse with him, who ought to have been struck off from the number of the creatures of God and destroyed. And yet we see how God hitherto extends his grace to them. For the life which he gives to them is a testimony of God's goodness. Since, therefore, God shows such favor toward those who are strangers to him, how shall it be with us who are members of his household? Not that we are better or more excellent than those whom we see to be cast off by him, but the whole proceeds from his mercy and true grace, that he reconciled to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, since he has called us to the knowledge of the gospel, and then confirms us and seals his bounty toward us, so that we ought to be convinced that he reckons us to be his children. Since, therefore, we see that he nourishes those who are estranged from him, let us go and hide ourselves under his wings, for having taken us under his protection, he has declared that he will show himself to be a father toward us. So there's that sense that, um, that Calvin's using there of God is abundantly merciful and kind, um, even to the wicked, even to us. Um, and he, you know, it's the concept of long-suffering. You know, he doesn't strike me down at the moment I sin, even though I deserve to be struck down at the moment I sin. Um, but he, you know, shows his grace and love to me in that moment. Um, and he does it for those who aren't conscious of it, but especially for us who believe we should see and rely upon his mercies. Um, and especially, you know, when we think of the first half of the saying, for to this end we toil and strive. And the strive there is, um, you know, the, it's, you look at some other translations kind of bring out, it's a striving against um, opposition. It's a striving against persecution. You know, it's not just working, you know, it's not just our labor, but specifically our labor for the gospel that brings us persecution and suffering. You know, but we keep toiling and striving, not because we look to the blessings of this earth, but because our hope is for this eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. Yes, Eric. Yeah, this idea that we don't know, you know, who the elect are, you know, we don't, you know, so the, uh, so we are to, you know, extend the, the promise of God's mercy to those, and those who he has called will respond, you know, his elect, uh, you know, will respond to the call, but we don't know, so it's our job to sow that call liberally, <laughs> Because we don't know. Yeah, Julie.
Yeah, and, and the way we usually talk about it is that Christ's death is sufficient for all. So his death, it's not, um, it, it's not, there, there's not a limitation in the amount of people that Christ could die for. You know, so it's not that, you know, he only had 20 bucks, so he can only give a dollar to 20 people. So it's not limited in that sense, but it's limited by his election. So his death is sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. So he didn't die for all sins of all human beings in general. He died for our particular sins, not because he couldn't, but because, again, because of the divine will, he chose to, to, to suffer and die for the sins of his people. Other things about, uh, what about the second use of Savior? So if that helps, you know, if, he's, if, if the first phrase, he's not talking about, you know, eternal, God's the eternal Savior of all men, but he's the temporal Savior of all men, and he especially uh, exercises this kind of providential care over his elect. What do we do with this last statement in verse, the final verse, about um, Timothy uh, persevering um, for his, the sake of his own, so that he could save himself and those who were under him. So what do we, how do we handle that one? Yeah, and it's this way of emphasizing the responsibility of, of the, the, the minister, of the overseer, of the, you know, the elder. That look, it's it's not a flippant thing you have. People's souls are in your care, <laughs> and you know it, it's it's not just you just might lead them into error, but you might lead them and in people into a false gospel um, that shuts off the possibility of salvation for them because they're never hearing the true gospel. So yeah, I think it's a way of pointing to. Um, the significance of the charge that's being given to, to Timothy here, that this isn't just sort of a, a light thing. Um, you know, I, I don't get to preach that often, but when I do, let me tell you, I feel the weight. I mean, I stand up before you every week. You know, I teach classes. Like, I, I, it's not natural to me, but I, I do it, you know. Um, there's a there's a weight on me, and I stand behind that thing not as a Sunday school teacher, um, but as a, a, a minister of God's word. That um, yeah, I I I feel it the responsibility because at that moment I am proclaiming God's truth, um, and there's a tremendous responsibility um, upon the minister to proclaim that truth faithfully and truthfully um, because. You're presenting the gospel, and so if you're presenting something that's not gospel, <laughs> you know that you are jeopardizing people's souls. And again, it's not. Um, uh, I like the way Calvin talks about this. It's not. Uh, it's not a passage that teaches about how we're saved, but it's it's teaching about the importance of the minister in God's normal way of demonstrating presenting the gospel, you know, that you know, we don't receive the gospel disembodied. We receive it through the vehicle 
of the, the ministry of God's word. And that is a tremendous responsibility that shouldn't be taken lightly. And, and the responsibility to persevere, you know, to, and, and I like the way, um, you know, if you think of passages, um, I, one of my favorite passages, I, I know I tell you these things all the time, but <laughs> um, is, is, is Philippians 3, and he starts off, Philippians, Paul starts off the chapter sort of with this great description of how all our works, even our righteous, not just our sinful actions, but even our righteous actions, our filthy rags to the surpassing righteousness of Christ. And he has this great description of why his hope isn't in his righteousness, but in an alien righteousness. And then he follows that with this, but I press on, you know, striving to, you know, he puts himself in a race, like, and he uses the, the example of a runner, you know, striving for the prize. Um, the prize that's already been won for him, as he describes, but that doesn't, um, negate the working out of one's salvation in fear and trembling. It's that idea that um, that if you've been saved, then that faith will work its way into your life um, and will lead to this um, humble striving after the pattern of godliness that God set before you. Not, you know, not to win something, <laughs> not to earn something, but in, in faithful response and gratitude to what has been won for you. Yeah, Jenna. And he's giving instructions to, to Timothy. And what does he enjoin Timothy to devote himself to right teaching and to faithful obedient work? <laughs> you know, and as we think about, you know, um, these kind of core tenets that um, identify one as a true overseer of God's people, it's this dedicated, disciplined pursuit of the word of God that um, leads to demonstrated change in the person's life. Not this posturing, um, not, and notice here, um, it's not even um, something that's, um, you know, because, you know, you've had a long track record of it. Like he has that great line, and don't let people despise you because you're young. <laughs> you know, that just because you're a young man, um, and you have this position of responsibility, don't let people despise you because of your age, because of your youth, but dedicate yourself to the things that you've been called to, um, that have been confirmed in you, gifts that have been confirmed in you by others. Again, this, I love this idea that his gifts have been recognized by this council of elders around him, this presbytery 
that has confirmed the truth of the gift in him and called them um, to this pursuit. Um, so even though he's, he's called to this charge, he's not in it alone. Yeah, and I I love that. And again, to go back to why I don't like the the you know we bow at the feet of a minister and like you know everything that he does or says must be right because he says it. But but that the minister is modeling growth and grace. Um, you know, modeling um, the the way that we progress. Um, and I liked how when they examined the people at Presbytery. Um, it's often phrased that, where are you now? <laughs> you know, where were you? you know, how'd you come to faith? Where are you now? Where are you struggling? You know, so it's this idea that you haven't reached some level of attainment that makes you worthy to be a minister and, you know, I'm in. <laughs> you know, I, I've got tenure now. <laughs> I don't have to do anything else. You know, it's not that kind of idea. It's that, you know, it's, recognizing that there is a true work of grace in you and that you are being led um, by the word of God through the spirit in growth and grace. Um, that you know, you're not a minister because you're perfect. You're a minister because you're, you know yourself, as we saw in chapter one, the chief of, of sinners. <laughs> um, Christ died to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. Um, and it's not a, I was the chief, it's present, Paul uses present tense there, you know, that he, at that moment, still considers himself to be the chief of sinners, which means he's that much more reliant upon the gospel. And I, I, I'm like you, I, I don't like um, ministers who present themselves as having their lives as being perfect, um, our life ministers who are open with the ways they struggle and the ways they grow, you know, to say, I used to think this way, God doesn't like how I am, and I want to see how I was wrong. That's, you know, that's what we all should be doing. All right, we're at time, so um, let us close in prayer. Um, gracious God, we thank you for the ministry of your word, um, and that your spirit is here present to guide us in all truth. And we thank you for the faithful ministers that you've raised up um, in our lives to proclaim the gospel faithfully to us. And we uh, ask that your spirit would continue to guide us in all truth. Uh, for we know that we can be led astray by our own desires. We can be led astray by our own hubris. We can be led astray by um, making things that we can do the essence of the Christian life rather than making it uh, the essence what Christ has done for us and who he is being the center of our faith. Um, continue to guide us uh, in truth. Uh, we do pray for um, the man you will have to oversee us in the future. 
and as the pulpit committee uh, works faithfully to bring uh, candidates before us, we pray even now that you would be uh, raising up uh, for us someone um, like uh, like we see pictured in Timothy, um, someone who is faithful to your word, seeking to, to discipline himself um, in, in spiritual pursuit, uh, growing in, in, in grace and growing in, in knowledge and understanding of his own sin, but growing even more in the depth of the love and mercy you've shown to us uh, in Christ. And we um, celebrate that uh, even now in this coming hour as we come together to worship you, to submit ourselves to the reading of your word, to exhortation and preaching that we would uh, respond to the faithful guidance of your spirit through your word. And we ask it in Christ's name by the power of your spirit. Thank you. 